0: Take your copy of God's word and turn to the Old Testament book of Isaiah, Isaiah, chapter 65. If you're new to the Bible, this is probably just about right in the middle of the Bible. Isaiah, chapter 65. Hear now the word of the living God. I was sought by those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. I have stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good according to their own thoughts. A people who provoke me to anger continually to my face, who sacrifice in gardens and burn incense on altars of bricks, who sit among the graves and spend the night in the tombs, who eat swine's flesh and the broth of abominable things is in their vessels. Who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. These are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silence, but will repay, even repay into their bosom your iniquities and the iniquities of your fathers together, says the Lord. Who have burned incense on the mountains and blasphemed me on the hills. Therefore, I will measure their former work into their bosom. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, Do not destroy it, for a blessing is in it. So will I do for my servants' sake, that I may not destroy them all. I will bring forth descendants from Jacob and from Judah, an heir of my mountains. My elect shall inherit it, and my servant shall dwell there. Sharon shall be a fold of flocks, and the valley of Achor a place for herds to lie down, for my people who have sought me. But you are those who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who prepare a table for Gad and who furnish a drink offering for many. Therefore, I will number you for the sword and you shall all bow down to the slaughter, because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not hear, but did evil before my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, my servant shall eat. But you shall be hungry. Behold, my servant shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servant shall rejoice, but you shall be ashamed. Behold, my servant shall sing for joy of heart, but you shall cry for sorrow of heart, and wail for grief of spirit. You shall leave your name as a curse to my chosen, for the Lord God will slay you, and call his servants by another name. So that he who blesses himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth. And he who swears in the earth shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hidden from my eyes. For behold, I make, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die one hundred years old, but the sinner being one hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. And my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children for trouble. For they shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. It shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. This is the word of the living God. And we say, thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray. Lord, now we pray that the gravity and gladness of this text would so take root in our hearts by your spirit, that the living Christ would be seen and savored, that the God who calls to sinners would be received, the judgment to come would be made clear, and hope of everlasting life would be seen in all of its glory and beauty. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. There is great tragedy in this text. Great tragedy comes to the surface in this passage of Scripture. And yet there is also great gladness and joy. Isaiah 65, written about 700 years or so before the Lord Jesus Christ was born, is a text which gives a picture of Gentile nations coming to God in mass. And it gives a picture of God's People, the old covenant people, the Hebrews, rejecting him. A picture of Gentiles coming to God and Jews rejecting him, all with heaven in view. If you're looking to summarize this passage this morning, maybe you could summarize it like this. That Isaiah 65 is a picture of Gentiles coming to God, of the nations coming to God. And yet Jews, Hebrews rejecting him all with heaven in view. Isaiah 65 is one of those passages that doesn't mention the name of Jesus Christ, and yet his work is all over this passage. I want us to walk through this passage and see a few things this morning as we consider the tragedy of this text. Perhaps a tragedy that some of you are currently walking in and need to be called out of. And yet a great joy and gladness as all things are made new. As the living God is seen as the God who calls out, who cries out to people. Here I am. Come and have me. So let us look at this passage of scripture, which points to Jesus. Jesus even though he wouldn't be born for another 700 years or so. The first thing that I want us to see this morning is the God who calls out to sinners. The God who calls out to sinners. Look at verse 1. It's as if God is speaking. I was sought by those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am. Here I am. To a nation that was not called by my name. Now, if you're new to the things of the Bible, you need to understand that it begins in the book of Genesis. There, the living God, the only God, creates all things out of nothing. Human beings are supposed to represent God. They're supposed to picture God among this pristine and glorious creation. And yet they fall into sin and rebellion against the living God. And from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3, this God gives a promise That this world will be cursed, that there will be troubles, that sins upon sins would compound themselves. And yet one would come and he would ultimately stamp out the work of Satan and he would redeem a people from every nation and tribe and tongue. And this promise goes all the way through the Bible. And, And so as you flip through the pages of the Bible, you're now about 700 years before Jesus, the one that God promised would come. 700 years or so before Jesus comes, prophecies are given. By this time, God has called a particular people, the sons and daughters of Abraham, the Hebrews, the Jews. And he's given them a set of promises. He's given them a land. He's given them kings. He's given them sacrifices and a temple. And all of those promises were so that the promise of the garden, that Jesus would come, would stay alive and that it would come to pass. And God's promise didn't fail some 700 years before the coming of Jesus, God's people, who didn't have changed hearts, it seems, had rejected him, had forsaken him. In fact, this would be the pattern of most of the Hebrews, even to the time of Jesus's very life. He is their Messiah, their promised one, and yet they're rejecting him. But who is it that is pictured as coming to God, even though even though they weren't his people throughout much of the pages of the Bible? Notice the phrases. I was sought by those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me to a nation that was not called by name. All three of these are references to Gentiles, non-Jewish peoples. Who were the enemies of God's people all throughout the Bible. Now they're pictured as coming to God. And God is saying to them, as it were, here I am. Here I am. Imagine that, friend. Here you sit in 2022. Maybe you're a believer. Maybe you're not even a Christian. Someone invited you to church today and the Bible is opened in front of you. And it's as if the God of all things is pictured right in your hearing as the God who says to you, here I am. Come to me. Come to me. The living God is a God who calls out to sinners. But notice the rejection. We we read it just a few moments ago. I won't read it all, but verses two through seven give a picture of the rejection of God's old covenant people. These are people who are called out by God's name. They've been given promises, and yet they reject him. Look, in verse 2, they're called a rebellious people. Notice the the distinction in verse 1. God cries out to the nations, here I am. And in verse 2, he is pictured as stretching out his hands all day long to who? A rebellious people. We see this discussed in Romans chapter 10, verse 21. Turn there with me. Romans chapter 10, verse 21. There... The Hebrew people, Israel, is pictured this way. But to Israel, he says, all day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Paul, writing after Christ's life, death, burial, resurrection and ascension, uses this very verse to picture Israel's plight. God extends his hand to them. And they reject him. Notice some of the ways that their rejection is pictured. Verse two, they walk in a way that is not good. They walk according to their own thoughts. Interestingly enough, in the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah, the same phrase walk according to their own thoughts is used eight times to refer to sins of improper worship. In verses three and four, you get a picture here. Maybe you heard this read and you thought, well, what's so bad about spending the night in a cemetery or eating swine's flesh? You have to remember, there are images here with old covenant ceremonial laws being used. Laws that were fulfilled and finished in Christ. Christ. But there are pictures here of how God's covenant people, the people who were called out by his name, are breaking covenant with him. They're in false idol worship. Notice they sacrifice in gardens and burn incense on altars of brick. You might think, well, what's wrong with an altar of brick? Well, brick was an example in the old covenant of unauthorized materials that were used for worship. Food laws are being broken here. Leviticus 11, 7. Graves being among the cemeteries. This is not a picture of someone putting flowers on someone's grave. This is a picture of necromancy, of being involved in some kind of communion with the dead in some sense, at least the attempt thereof. And notice the heart of these people, verse 5, who say, keep to yourself. Do not come near me, for I am holier than you. The Puritan Matthew Poole writes on this phrase in verse 5 Though they were so exceedingly guilty, yet they pretended to a singular sanctity, so as they would not suffer others to come near or touch them. Thus they esteemed themselves holier than others, though all their holiness lay in these rituals, and those too, such as God never commanded. And indeed, those who most exceed in such ritual holiness, lying merely in a separation from others by the usage of some unwritten traditions, come most short in moral and true holiness. Look, their their heart's posture is, stay away from me, I'm holier than you, and yet they are dirty and unclean and unredeemed on the inside. So here you have God pictured as calling out to both sets of people. And those who should come first because they had all the promises. They've heard all the preaching of the prophets. They won't come. And instead, they rely on their own holiness, which is no holiness at all. And notice in verse six and seven that the Lord will bring judgment for sin. Behold, it is written before me. I will not keep silence, but will repay. Verse seven, your iniquities and the iniquities of your fathers together. And then there's a a reciting again of the kinds of sins, of idolatry that are practiced. So what do we have so far? God stretching out his hands to all peoples. Here I am. And one particular set of people, the people who've heard of him the most won't come. So he promises judgment upon them. But notice in verses 8 through 10. That he says, but I'm not going to destroy them yet. In verse eight, thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster and one says, do not destroy it for a blessing is in it. So I will do for my servant's sake. Now, boys and girls, what's being talked about here? Reminds me a little bit of maybe some of the plants and perhaps your family's garden or my garden, at least in the years when the garden does well. You know, you have a plant, and it seems as though it's not producing well at all. The, the, the fruit that is there, perhaps it's tomato or perhaps it's peppers, it, it, it looks ugly. In fact, there should be a lot more of them, and, and there's nothing there. But there are a few that seem to be good. And so you don't necessarily rip that plant out yet, because you want to get those few good tomatoes or those few good peppers off of the plant. God is pictured here as saying, even though I'm going to judge this rebellious people, I'm not going to do it yet, because there are still a few. It's an imagery of a vineyard owner who doesn't destroy all of the vines because of the barren. Because some few sprigs have fruit. And so in verse 10, what do we see? Sharon shall be a fold of flocks, and the valley of Acor a place for herds to lie down. Now, maybe you're new to the things of the Bible and you think, I don't know what Sharon is. I don't know what the Valley of Achor is. Well, Sharon was a place of great fruitfulness. First Chronicles 27, 29. It was the place where shepherds would take their sheep and find plenty of green pastures. But it later became barren. Isaiah 33, 9. And so for the living God to say among these few sprigs that I'm not going to stamp out, even though most of the vine is gone. For him to say, "Sharon shall be a fold for flocks," is him saying, "Hey, where there was barrenness, there's going to be great fruit again." And then, of course, many of you remember the Valley of Achor. It's a place of great judgment. It was the place that Achan and his family were stoned for breaking God's law. Joshua seven twenty-six, Hosea two fifteen. So Old Testament places and Old Testament stories brought to bear for God to say, I will produce great fruit again. But Don't miss the picture. God is the God who calls out to sinners. Those who disobey, those who fail, those who have previously rejected him. He calls out to them and many will come. they will come because they hear that he ultimately sent his son who died for their sins. Hebrews 9, 26. But many who hear the preaching of the promise of this Christ, of the promises of the goodness of God, many who hear about the mercies of God, the, the kind of mercies that we just sang about, those will be the very ones who are rebellious and unredeemed in heart and will not come. And yet God is the God who calls out to sinners. But secondly, in our text, we see that the living God is the God who judges unbelievers. God is the God who judges unbelievers. The text continues in verse 11, but you are those who forsake the Lord. And then again, using the language of the pictures of old covenant Hebrew worship, temples, the mountain of the temple, Jerusalem is used, who forget my holy mountain, who prepare a table for Gad, a pagan idol, who furnish a drink offering for many, another kind of pagan, false God. Here, God says, my people are people who live in persistent unbelief, And it's pictured in that they forsake me. They forsake the worship of me and they serve other gods. And so in verse 12, we read, therefore, I will number you for the sword and you shall all bow down to the slaughter. This is a statement of judgment on those who did not believe when called. This, of course, In its original context has to do with a particular ethnic group. The Hebrews, the Jews who were given the promises such that ultimately from them, the Christ would come and he has come. But there's a word of application in this for us today. Are you among the people of God today, friend, but you're not really in Christ? Are you numbered among those who've called upon the living God? You hear the preaching. You come to the worship, you read the book, and yet you have not given your heart to Christ. Better said, Christ has not owned your heart. J.C. Ryle, writing over a century ago, says this. It's very sobering. The saddest road to hell is the one that runs under the pulpit, past the Bible, and through the middle of warnings and invitations. What a tragedy we have in this text. Because here God is pictured as the God who calls out. And yet the very people, the church people, as it were, the old covenant, are those who in large measure do not have their hearts set upon the king of kings. Now, Some 700 years later, Christ would come. And the picture of this text actually happened. Many of the Jews of his day rejected him. The religious leaders, the ones who were the responsible teachers of these promises, they rejected him. But a few came, a few sprigs on that vine came. Then very quickly more came and then nations started to come to Christ. Romans and Thessalonians and Colossians and Ephesians, they started flocking to Christ, rich and poor, male and female. God, the God who calls out to all who will have it, says, my son died for your sins. There's nothing that stands in the way of you coming to me. And yet, down through the ages, people who've grown up in religious settings, in homes, that talk about God and his promises who sit under sermon week in and week out, sometimes, tragically, they are the ones who reject Christ in their souls. And instead, they have that verse 5 kind of attitude, viewing themselves as holy, viewing themselves as righteous, but their hearts are far from the living God, for they are not saved. A Puritan, Stephen Charnock, once wrote, actually, speaking of demons, boys and girls, he was talking about those angels they rebelled against God and sided with Lucifer, Satan, if you will, become angels of darkness. He said of demons that they could say something like this. And this is very sobering. Quote, we did indeed refuse the cover of the wings of the son of God. But we never refused a Christ bearing our sins in our nature for none was offered to us. After the experience of the misery of our first contempt, can any such plea be made by an unbeliever under the sound of the gospel? You see what Charnock is saying there. Even the demons, those that we consider the worst of all creatures, their rejection of God does not include the rejection of offered salvation in Christ. And yet for some, perhaps even in this room, there's the preaching of the gospel. There's the extending of the hands of God through the preaching of His Word. And yet, just like the Jews of old, they will not come. Notice in verses 13 to 16, the differences in the future between believers and unbelievers. Notice the differences between believers and unbelievers one day. It, it, it's, it's as if it's a back and forth Therefore, thus says the Lord God My servant shall eat, but you shall be hungry. My servant shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. My servant shall rejoice, but you shall be ashamed. It continues that way. What is the difference? Well, believers will be satisfied for all of eternity in Christ. Whereas unbelievers, those who've rejected the living God, will be unsatisfied. They will be, as it were, hungry throughout all of eternity. Similarly, believers are those as pictured as having eternal drink, living water, as it were. Or as the future of unbelievers is pictured as a a future of constant thirst. Or how about the picture of joy versus shame or joy versus sorrow, death versus life? 13 through 15 gives us a picture, as it were, of heaven and and hell. At the beginning of it all, we see the God who calls out to sinners is also the God who judges unbelievers. They will not come. You may say, Ah, oh, but this how can this be? I've wandered into a church today that believes that God will have some kind of eternal punishment for those who reject Christ. And yet think on this for just a moment, friend. Those that reject Christ have no sacrifice for sins. They have no record but their own record to plead before the throne of God. They can, on that great judgment day, offer their works, but all of their works are tainted with sin. What work have you done would not... A single shred of pride or arrogance. Just take God's perfect standard of righteousness, the law. Can you stand before the king of kings, the one who must judge all things, the one who is holy and righteous? Can you stand in front of that one and offer a perfect record of righteousness worthy of eternal life? No, what you can offer is a hunger for sin and a thirst for unrighteousness and a life that loves the shame of sin and a life that unbeknownst to you is actually full of sorrow and your eternity will simply be that. God giving you what your righteousness deserves. Notice in verse 15, we can't really see it in English. You shall leave your name as a curse to my chosen. The Lord is pictured here as speaking to all of the unrebellious, or the, all the rebellious and unbelieving people. But look at the next phrase for the Lord God will slay you. Singular. There is a sense in which God is speaking to unbelievers who reject the offer of Christ, even though they hear it, but now. The language turns to the individual. One by one, they will be judged for their sins. And the tragedy is, in this instance, in this context, these were people who heard preaching, and sometimes they heard good preaching. These were people who went to church, if you will. They sang the Psalms better than a lot of us, but their hearts were not owned. Their sins were not forgiven. And the blood that would be ultimately shed for the sins of God's people was not covering their sins. And it's tragic. So let me ask you. You're in this room today with a bunch of God's people. You're here today among a bunch of people who call upon the living God. And we only call on Him because He's called out to us. Here I am. And by His Spirit, we've seen gloriously that He will receive us. And so we've come. We've said, yes, I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. God, You have provided the only Savior that can save me from all my sins. My righteousness is a filthy rag. But You, living God, are my righteousness. And so I come. And here You sit. Do You sit as one who knows God in Christ? Or are you like these people? I'm going to get somewhere with my own righteousness. I'm going to worship in my own way. I'm going to serve gods that I love. All the while hearing the words of the gospel this very day. What a tragedy. But it doesn't have to be that way, friend. Because the opening of this passage of scripture is that God says to any who has ear to hear, here I am. So what do we see so far? We see the God who calls out to sinners and the God who judges unbelievers. But thirdly, the tragedy turns to immense joy. In fact, we're invited almost, as you read it from verses 16 to 17, to to kind of take hold of a future reality and, and rejoice in it even now. And so therefore, thirdly, we see the God who makes all things new. Notice what's happening here in verse 15. This unbelieving people are basically choosing a curse. And God says, you shall leave your name as a curse to my chosen for the Lord God will slay you and call his servants by another name. I'm going after another people and putting my name on them. The unbelieving old covenant people will be cursed and God will give a new name to his chosen people. And then there's a picture moving us into verse 17. 16 gives us a little glimpse of what those people will be like. They will be blessed in the God of truth, they will swear by the God of truth. They'll have an understanding that former troubles are to be forgotten. Why? Verse 17, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. It's as if the reader is invited to say a day is coming when the Lord God, the living God, will create new heavens and a new earth. And we are to rejoice in that reality even now. Rejoice in what I create, the living God says. This is the God who makes all things new. The discussion for believers in verses 13 to 16 is now expanded into this future hope. Now, there have been likely many ways to interpret verses 17 to 25 down through the ages. Perhaps the two dominant views go like this. One is, this is a picture of the new heaven and the new earth. The other is, this is a picture of some kind of Millennium that Revelation speaks of where things aren't fully what they shall be, but Christ has come. And now there is this new reign, if you will, of Christ among his people. And so the pictures here are interpreted slightly more literalistically. For instance, look at verse 20. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days. Nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days for the child shall die 100 years old. And so people interpreting that literalistically say, well, the word die is there. People must be dying. So this can't be heaven. But I would submit to you that the former view, I think, is the better view. And here's why. As you read verses 20 and following. Even though there are, yes, literal images of things that happen, pictures of things that happen, if you trace them to the Old Covenant curses, you will find a very interesting commonality. In fact, just read the curses of the Old Covenant in places like Deuteronomy 28, beginning in verse 15. Turn over there with me for just a moment. This is important for us to consider what Era, this passage is speaking about Deuteronomy 28, verse 15. These are the curses of the old covenant upon the old covenant people if they did not stay in covenant with God. But it shall come to pass, Deuteronomy 28:15, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all the commandments and his statutes, which I command you today, that these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And then you begin to read all of these very negative sounding things. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. It's going to be famine for you. Cursed shall be your city. Cursed shall you be in the country. But skip ahead to verse 30 and following. In verses 30 to 35, you get a picture of people who are not allowed to live. Or if they're allowed to live, other people get to experience the fruit of what they have. Look at verse 30. You shall betroth a wife, but another man shall lie with her. You shall build a house, but you shall not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but you shall not gather its grapes. Your sons and daughters shall be given to another people. And on and on and on it goes. And many have made the point, and I'm simply agreeing with them today, that verses 20 to 23, this picture of infants not living but just a few days, nor a man living and not being able to fulfill his days. Or verse 21, building a house and actually being able to inhabit it, planting a vineyard and actually being able to eat its fruit. Building and not having someone else take it from you and live in it. These are all those kinds of old covenant curses. What we have here is a new heaven and a new earth where what curse is gone. This is a reversal of covenant curses. The living God is saying to all who have ears to hear, I'm about to make it so that all things are new. So that the experience of the curse Of the old covenant, and I would submit to you even beyond that, the curse of all creation from the fall is gone. And again, in verse 18, notice the command to simply be glad in what God creates anew. Now, yes, verse 20 does say, no more shall an infant from there live but a few days. In his recent commentary, Mottier writes this, quote, it is not meant to suggest that death will still be present. This would contradict the word forever in verse 18. No more in verse 19. And the death of death way back in Isaiah 25, 7 and 8. It simply affirms that over the whole of life, the power of death will be gone. Verse 19 has already said that weeping will be completely gone. So just take a moment with me, brothers and sisters. If what is being spoken of here in verse 19 is that there will be no more weeping. If we have... Literal infants dying in the very next verse, are we to assume that no one weeps for them? Of course not. We have a picture of God creating new heavens and new earth, and the curse and all that it meant, the horrible realities that it meant, are gone. Deuteronomy 28:30 to build and not inhabit was a sign of being a covenant breaker. Now, what do we see here? Never will you build and not inhabit. There's no curse. The Puritan Matthew Poole discussing whether this is some kind of millennium in which Christ reigns. And yet you have just a little bit of time before the new heavens and the new earth says this, quote, Whether this new heavens and new earth here promised signifies such a state of the church wherein Christ shall personally reign upon the earth over his state, saints, the wicked being destroyed, I very much doubt and do not see how from this and the parallel text any such thing can be concluded. We'll end our discussion here of the two views. I linger here just for a moment because there are many who seek to make a. Premillennial kind of case from this passage. And I think what we have here is the living God who calls out to sinners, who promises that he's going to judge unbelievers, now pressing believers into what is to come. The ultimate new heavens and the new earth where no more shall sin and sorrows grow. No thorns will infest the ground because the one who has come has come. And he has spread his promised reward far as the curse is found. Well, verse 23, quickly. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children for trouble. Another example of a curse mentioned in Deuteronomy that won't happen here. For they shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord. Now, this is crucial. Throughout the Old Testament, who was it that were considered the blessed of the Lord? And were the descendants of the blessed of the Lord. Abraham's people. Abraham's people. God gave him a promise. And you shall, the nations of the earth, be blessed. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. But the New Testament in Galatians 3, 29 says, Every single person that trusts in Jesus for forgiveness of sins is one of Abraham's sons or daughters. Is that you? Are you part of this blessed of the Lord? Notice what happens if you are verse 24 and 25. There will be fellowship with the Lord. It's almost pictured in such poetic ways here that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear the wolf and the lamb shall feed together. Boys and girls here on this earth right now. You're hardly ever, if ever, going to see out in the plains, maybe on a family Vacation. You're never going to see a wolf and a lamb sitting right next to each other in peace. This picture, however, is meant to show the serene picture of peace, the imagery of peace that God will bring. So, God, the living God, is the God who calls to sinners. Friend, he calls to you. You may say, what do you mean? Well, in his word, he calls out to all. Here is my son. He died for sins. I will receive you if you trust in him. Come to him for the washing of your sins. Let the fountain of his blood wash them away. But we also see a picture of the God who will judge unbelievers. And it will be a tragic day on that day. For many of those unbelievers will be church people. There'll be old covenant Hebrews. Or there'll be people who didn't believe, but they connected themselves to the church of the New Covenant in the New Testament. They sat under preaching. They sang the Psalms. They came to the Lord's table. They were baptized. And yet they were not Christ because they didn't believe. Judgment will be upon them. But all the while, we have this glorious new creation, this God who makes all things new. Our brother prayed this morning for 10 particular nations where it is the hardest, statistically speaking, to be a follower of Christ. want to be glorious in the new heaven and the new earth to link arms and have fellowship without any sin. Fellowship. With people from those nations. People for whom Christ died. People for whom the word was, you will have your head removed. You will be tortured if you follow him. And yet, they heard the living God say, here am I. And they came. And you, here, without threat of torture, without threat of death, at least not yet, here in the hearing of your ears that Christ says to any who will have him, including you, come. Here I am. So this text today either needs to be a text where we rejoice in the gladness of the hope that we have in Christ and what it means. Or it needs to be a text where we soberly consider, am I currently one of the tragedies of this text? And if by God's grace you come to understand, I've been saying that I'm Christ's. For years, but I'm not his. Then verse 1 is still for you. I was found by those who did not seek me. And I said, here I am. Let's pray. Almighty God, help your people this day. Confirm our faith this day. And as you do it, Remind us that we are to look to Christ. Help us to consider whether we're looking to Christ or looking somewhere else for meaning and for salvation. Lord, give us the hope of this passage. Rejoicing even now in what you are about to make. A new heaven and a new earth. Where the curse is gone Lord, as we suffer, even right now, press us in, we pray, to that glorious day. Have your way among us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen.